Welcome to Let's Talk Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting everything diabetes with healthcare professionals, people from the Diabetes UK team and people living with diabetes in Northern Ireland. Today we are joined by Mark Davies. Mark is a consultant clinical psychologist working in Belfast City Hospital and is also involved in a number of ongoing research projects. Mark will be joining us for a series of three podcasts chatting about emotional well-being and resilience when you live with diabetes. I'm your host Susie Hull, Healthcare Engagement Manager at Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. These sessions will look at emotional well-being for those living with type 1 diabetes, those living with type 2 diabetes and how healthcare professionals can support people's emotional well-being during their diabetes journey. For today we'll focus our discussion on living with type 1 diabetes and we'll be asking Mark to give us top tip to you at the end. Mark, it's great to have you joining us, but before we jump into any chatting, can you tell us a bit about yourself, the role you do, and why you chose to work in diabetes care? Thank you, uh, Susie. Yeah, it's not very nice to be here. Pleasure to be here. Um, as people can probably figure out very quickly, I'm not originally from Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from North Wales originally, and I came to Belfast in 1995 to study uh, a doctorate in clinical psychology in Queens, and I had no intention of staying, if the truth be told. Uh, the plan was to go to Australia thereafter, but I was um, charmed and seduced by the locals. That's a very different choice to make. <laughs> and ended up getting married, and I've been here since. What's that, that was tw- the real reason, was it? Well, yeah. 28 years, uh, and for, well, more years than I care to remember, I've been part of the diabetes team in Belfast. When I, when I first started working in Belfast Trust, I was uh, doing a role in lots of different teams. I did a bit of cancer, and I did a bit of mental health, and I had one session a week, one afternoon a week, working in the diabetes team. And I found that the, the diabetes healthcare professionals were really good psychologists, and I felt very at home in the diabetes team. So one session eventually became a full-time job. So for the last, perhaps, 17 or 18 years, I've only worked with people with diabetes. Okay. So my job is to, to, to uh, have conversations with people with diabetes and with the people who care for them uh, and think through some of the challenges of self-managing Uh, a condition which can be very burdensome and relentless and exasperating at times. So as well as doing clinical work, I also do bits of research and, and, and bits of teaching. So that's essentially my job. Okay, and we'll touch on some of that maybe in some of the later episodes that we're going to talk about. So maybe just to kick things off, then you're saying you've over 20 years experience there working with people living with diabetes. So from that experience, what would you say, what do people come in with, like the hardest thing about living with type 1? To help people understand, I think, the challenge of living with type 1 diabetes, the metaphor I always reach for is the story of Sisyphus. Okay. And many people listening will be familiar with the story of Sisyphus. But I think you might have to tell me about the, it, though, because I don't. <laughs> for those who aren't, Sisyphus was uh, an errant Greek god. Okay. He was a Greek god. He used to annoy all the other Greek gods. Uh, and after one particular misdemeanor, Zeus, who was the chief executive of the Greek gods, decided he was going to punish Sisyphus. And Sisyphus's punishment was to roll a huge boulder up to the top of a mountain. And it took him all day to perform this task. And just before the end of the day, the boulder would roll down to the bottom of the hill. And the next day he'd have to do it again. And his punishment was to do that task for all eternity. So very relentless then? A relentless, um, difficult, exhausting, emotionally and physically exhausting task. And endless, he was asked to do that to all eternity. And when I 
use that metaphor with people with diabetes, type 1 diabetes in particular, they nod and smile and say, yeah. That's a very relatable story. So I think one of the things that makes that punishment so effective is that it's purposeless. It's a purposeless task. It serves no purpose. So when I start having conversations with people uh, with type 1 diabetes who aren't looking after themselves or who aren't looking after their diabetes well, one of the things I know as a psychologist is that for any human being to do something, to commit to something, it has to be meaningful. It has to be a purposeful task. And if you ask healthcare professionals, well, what is the task of looking after type 1 diabetes? Healthcare professionals will say, well... We don't want people getting complications and we don't want people's lives blighted by complications and people are very important and their lives are very important. For many people, that message makes sense. It's a meaningful message. It makes sense to them. But, but it's I know, not real to them in that moment either, potentially. For some people it is. For some people, they do value themselves and they do value their lives and the idea of looking after themselves is purposeful. It's meaningful to them. It chimes okay. with their values. But not everybody, interestingly, um, was taught during their childhood that they're important. Or okay. they're worthwhile, or that they should be the priority over other people. So I would, work, and therefore not to look after yourself. The, the message "look after yourself" isn't as meaningful yeah. for those people. A lot of the people I work with are actually very good at looking after other people, and they were programmed, if you like, in childhood to be taught to put other people before themselves. So I can think of somebody who comes to see me as a healthcare professional, and we were having this very conversation about when you were a child, were you taught that you were important? Were you taught that your needs are just as important or even more important than other people's and he looked at me and he said I was the youngest of 10 so naturally and he said you know I I had shoes and I had trousers and I had a coat but they weren't weren't mine I always had this sense other people's needs were more important than me and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that he became a healthcare professional and he's a brilliant healthcare professional doesn't want to retire he looks after other people he looks after uh, his family he doesn't look after himself great. And what for somebody living with diabetes then, what does that mean for their... So one of the conversations I'll have with people is trying to come up with a purpose that's meaningful to them. Okay. Now, I don't come up with that purpose. It's up to the person with diabetes. Well, because you don't know what the purpose is. You don't know what their purpose so of life is. So we have conversation about values and we have conversation about meanings and we have conversations about um, what's important to them. To, to that gentleman I mentioned earlier, being there for other people was really important to him. So the idea he had to look after himself because he needed to be there for other people, that chimed with him. And suddenly, diabetes self-management became a purposeful activity, and that helped him to become motivated and get behind it and start pushing that boulder up to the top of the mountain because it made sense to him and to his values. The idea of looking after yourself didn't quite chime in the same way, but look after yourself to look after other people, that made sense to him. So do you think then that's the hardest thing sometimes to get to understand is what your purpose is for managing? Not, not just in people with diabetes, for all of us. You know, if we think of things that we, that we commit to, uh, our, I, you know, I've seen a lot of people, one of the things we've done over the years in the NHS is provide informal support to NHS staff. And sometimes staff get burnt out and staff get lost and they forget why they're doing the job. And it's, We all do in life. Yeah, up to a degree. We all do. Uh, we all forget why we're doing something. We ask the question, oh, what is the point? That is yeah. not an unusual question for uh, a human being to ask. And having a conversation, well, yeah, what is the point can be really helpful sometimes for giving people motivation. And almost nearly for then people living with diabetes, not fully removing the condition because that's part of their life, but working out why, why you manage, why, exactly. Exactly. why all of that is important to you exactly. as an individual. Exactly, exactly. 
Okay. Exactly correct. I suppose the other thing people talk to me about, the, the, the other idea, one of the other ideas that people find difficult when they're uh, asked to manage their diabetes is that it's an endless task. It yep. feels like, do I have to do this? And that's overwhelming. We talk a lot about that sense of being overwhelmed. There's a lot when you are newly diagnosed, when you've been living with the condition for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, there's always a sense of it can be overwhelming and that can change too. It can be overwhelming today, but not tomorrow. Absolutely, Susie. Absolutely. And how does somebody, I don't want to use the word control because control seems quite strong, but... How does somebody manage that? Maybe it's a better word. Yeah, I think I think there's two ideas I would use in my work. One is, you know, try not to future gaze. Okay. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, for example, and we were all future gazing and thinking about well, what might happen and what might not happen. There's a um, lot of ca- catastrophizing that goes on there. There are times when future gazing is not helpful. Yeah. Sometimes you've just got to deal with it today. And I say to people, look after your diabetes today and try and look after it tomorrow. And that's your goal. The other, the other concept, of course, is hope. Yeah. And the hope for people with type 1 diabetes is technology. Okay. So technology will come, well, technology is here, and uh, our task now is to get that technology out to people. Now, it's not a panacea, it's not a plug-in-and-go answer to diabetes self-management, but... Because you still have to understand your diabetes, it's just that technology maybe will take some of that burden or management for that. Yeah, it will take some of the heavy lifting, it'll make living with diabetes much easier. It'll be much easier to live uh, with diabetes than in 2030 than it was in... 2010 or 2000 or 1990. Because we can see the difference of the last 10, 20, 30 years, and we've talked previously on this podcast a little bit about technology and the advances of any type of treatment. And you work a lot in research as well. Research develops new treatments, new ways of management, and technology is part of that. And it provides hope. Yeah. It provides hope that things will get easier. And I am as sure as I can be that living with diabetes will be easier in the future. What about then, so we talk a lot about, and maybe technology is a part of this kind of question too, is we talk a lot about perfect diabetes control. And I want to use air quotes when I <laughs> say perfect there. But is it possible to have perfect diabetes control using technology, not using technology? What does that look like? Well, putting technology to one side, I think the image I get in my head when you talk about uh, perfect diabetes control is sort of flatline capillary blood glucose. Yeah. And is it possible for somebody with type 1 diabetes to achieve that? No, it's not. It's not. And the reason for that is capillary blood glucose is affected by so many different factors. Yeah. I've got a slide uh, which I show sometimes called 64 things or 65 things that impact on capillary blood glucose. And um, that's probably not everything. And there's, well, I add to that slide, it started off at about 53 and now <laughs> I'm adding to it gradually. Um, I remember watching a rugby game, Ireland against New Zealand, with somebody wearing uh, a CGM. And I'm, which is a continuous sorry, glucose sorry, monitor. A continuous glucose monitor. So that's a little device that measures that person's blood glucose in real time. Yep. And I can I, I can say for certain that bad refereeing decisions causes hyperglycemia. <laughs> there was definite evidence there to suggest that. There was that. clear in-time evidence. <laughs> but there are so many other things beyond our control that impact on capillary blood glucose. Weather, menstrual cycle, stress, medication. The list goes on and on and on and on. So the idea that we have total control over our capillary blood glucose isn't correct. And I suppose even that list you gave there, like the one that surprises me, weather. You know, I maybe think like diet, exercise, all of that. But weather, 
And you can change that. So we know. <laughs> we all love to change rain the sunshine. It's a nice warm day in Belfast today. I was walking in in my jacket and I was also thinking, oh, some people are going to need slightly less uh, insulin today. Okay, so you automatically kind of nearly think of that. And, and people with diabetes will recognise that as well. People with type 1 diabetes will have an eye out on the weather and think, mm, do I need a little less or a little more uh, insulin today according to what the weather. So when we look at somebody who's maybe wanting and desiring that perfect control, how do you, from that emotional well-being side of things, how do you manage that? So the important thing for people to think about is their perception of control. How okay. much control do I have over my capillary blood glucose? If you overestimate how much control you have if you think you have more control than you actually have it becomes very very frustrating because every time your blood glucose does something a little bit random you will automatically think oh hang on a minute i've done something wrong there. what have i done what have i done so and it's you almost will a take responsibility for something beyond your control so one of the things we talk about a lot in my consulting room is how much control do you have over your diabetes and most people, if you ask them that question, if they think about... I remember uh, doing a, a talk with some young adults just before Christmas, I remember, in Belfast. This must have been about 10 years ago. And there were maybe 25 young adults in the room. And I said to them, how much control do you have over your capillary blood glucose? And they said, that's a stupid question. So the question they asked me, they taught me to ask them was, to what degree does your capillary blood glucose behave in a logical enough way to give you a degree of control over it? <laughs> that, that, a really that's a lot question. of a longer question there. So after they asked themselves that question, they thought about it and they said somewhere between 60 to 70% of the time. Somewhere okay. between two-thirds to three-quarters of the time, the capillary blood glucose is reasonably logical. Okay. And the rest of the time, it's completely illogical. And that 60 to 70% is maybe when they're aware that they are about to do exercise or that they've just eaten a meal or, the or going changed to. Or, or it's the time of the month or whatever it might be. Some and, sort of thing that they know and understand is yeah. something they maybe have some control over. When that when the group came up with that idea, about 60 to, there was a girl from Dublin, I remember, a young lady from Dublin, she's about 23, 24, lived with diabetes for about 10 years and she started to cry because she said that's the first time that's ever been acknowledged that I don't have full control over my capillary blood glucose. And she was so relieved to, to, to sit in a room with other people with type 1 diabetes who were saying, sometimes I have control over this and sometimes I don't. And it was such a relief to her to hear is, the truth of her reality. It's probably a perception of others then that comes into that and that feeling for somebody living with diabetes that other people think you should have control of it, that you're not allowed a bun, that you're not, well, if you give yourself a bun that's you not controlling your diabetes and that's completely not right absolutely correct so sometimes we the, the issue we're working on is what's your perception of how much control you have and the tricky thing about that is if you really look after your diabetes well i mean if you if you make every insulin decision every carb counting decision everything's perfect you're 100 percent perfect all the tasks all the hundreds and hundreds of tasks you have to do every single day you do them perfectly so you're 100% perfect, your diabetes will still wobble around for about 30% of the time. Yep. So that flat line will not happen. So you have that discrepancy between effort and reward. You yep. can put in 100% effort and your reward is 70%. So it violates that rule, you get out of life what you put into it, yep. not when it comes to capillary blood glucose. And it's that circumstance then, that discrepancy, that creates the frustration. It creates a sense of failure, and that failure can very often turn into 
I'm not doing this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. So one of the big concepts I use clinically is the idea of control the controllables. I so love that. I've heard you saying this before and I love that statement. And it will make sense to some and not others. It's true in life as well. There yeah. are things we have control over and the things we don't have control over. If we figure out what we have control over, whether it's to do with um, managing capillary blood glucose or anything else, and we do that to the best of our ability, it increases the chance we'll get the outcome we want. It doesn't guarantee it. Sometimes we get a disappointing outcome. But a disappointing outcome is different to failure. Failure is when you don't take control of the things you have control yeah. over. That's what failure is. But if you do everything in your power to the best of your ability and you get a reward or it increases the chance of getting a reward but occasionally you'll get a disappointing outcome but that gives people a sense of resilience even if they get a disappointing outcome they can say oh, well do you know what i tried my best yeah. i didn't fail so control the controllables is a concept i would use a lot and i would urge people with type 1 diabetes not to take responsibility for things beyond their control and very often capillary blood glucose is, is beyond their control i wouldn't suggest to anybody that they should take responsibility for the weather <laughs> Absolutely not. In Northern Ireland, I don't think anybody <laughs> should be able to. And that's to... a metaphor I use for people with type 1 diabetes. Don't yeah. take responsibility for your completely blood glucose. Yeah. You have you have more control over it than the weather, obviously, but yeah. the metaphor. But I suppose as well, there's you know, what, I, what I pick up there is a lot about understanding that or being told it. Sometimes you mentioned that girl living 23, 24, had lived for 10 years and nobody had told her, you won't have control. Because a lot of the messaging comes from somewhere else that says you should have control. Even that word control, if you think about yeah. it, that word control implies that you have control over your capillary blood glucose. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of word I've used quite a lot in the last 10 minutes, but, but not a word I particularly like. Is it about changing that word or trying to change that word in your own mind, in your own head, if it doesn't work for you to trying to manage your condition, trying to support <laughs> your life? I think we all recognise there are certain things we have control over and certain things we don't have control yeah. over. And it's just trying to disentangle that a little bit when it comes to diabetes yeah. self-management. So people are very clear in their mind. What do they have control over? Insulin decisions, carb counting, uh, monitoring bloods, uh, and what they don't have control over. And which side of that line capillary blood glucose is on. I suppose they're then kind of moving on. We hear a lot of that is probably related or turns into what we know as diabetes distress, diabetes burnout. We had spoke a little bit there about mm. technology and you can get alarm fatigue. All of that, those are all terms that are maybe used and people would have heard of. And it's all in relation to those frustrations with diabetes, with the not feeling like you're managing it or it becoming overwhelming. Um and I suppose probably my question is around, is it helpful to put a label on it, like diabetes distress, diabetes burnout? I suppose 25 years ago when I started working in diabetes, the label given to the to the emotional burden of, of living with diabetes was depression. And that was probably an unhelpful label. Yeah. People felt pathologised and felt like they were... It's very medical. It's unhelpful. And the idea was, that, you know, if you've got depression, you have to go somewhere else. You have to go to the mental health team to get your depression sorted. It's very separate. It's very separate. It's very pathologising and, and it takes away the kind of ordinariness and the normality of the stress living with uh, diabetes. So I think diabetes distress is helpful in as much that it doesn't pathologise the emotions yeah. uh, that go with with diabetes you know we talked about having a purpose and we talked about um, not taking ownership of stuff you don't have control over I think one of the other big 
things that you alluded to earlier for people with diabetes is that type 1 diabetes is a really, really misunderstood condition. Yeah. Uh, people do not understand what it's like to live with type 1 diabetes. They have ideas like this person has total control over their capillary blood glucose. And it is why we're choosing to speak about these a little bit separately and do a session on type 1 yeah. diabetes for focus on there and we will follow on with a session for type 2 because... Well, yes, there may be similarities. It's all diabetes umbrella. It's a, but there are significant differences there are significant for people. Differences, yeah. Causation is another one. A lot yeah. of people with type one diabetes get angry uh, with the idea that uh, they are held responsible for their diagnosis, which is clearly they have caused that it. they have caused it in some way through lifestyle failure or whatever it might be. So, uh, so, so a lot of people with type one diabetes feel misunderstood, and that is a horrible feeling to be misunderstood. People will tell me they have these conversations with people and the person for some reason think that the other person without diabetes thinks they know more about diabetes than the yeah. person living with it. And the person with diabetes just gets angry and infuriated after these conversations. But after a while, that anger turns into something else and it turns into loneliness and isolation. Yeah. And people with diabetes say, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to listen to the responses people to give me. It's yourself easier on. not to disclose and just keep it to myself. And one of the things that makes the Sisyphean task such a difficult one is that's lonely. And yeah. living with type 1 diabetes can, lo can be lonely too. And if somebody's in that space... How do you, as a psychologist working in a service, how do you bring somebody out of that or how do they get out of that themselves? I think it's really helpful to talk to somebody who gets it. Okay. That's it. Whether it's a person with diabetes or somebody who knows type 1 diabetes or a healthcare professional who understands type 1 diabetes, just talking to somebody who gets it can be really, really helpful. Just to be understood. It's a basic human need to be understood and to be respected. And healthcare professionals underestimate how powerful getting it can be and it's, that's maybe leading me on slightly to what I wanted to talk about like there are so many people involved in your diabetes care in your life in your support systems from healthcare professionals and there's many different ones that you may see you also have family and friends who can and cannot support that sometimes but what are what's the importance of support from those relationship really important really important that people with type 1 diabetes don't feel isolated and I think because it prevents potentially that I'm not saying it will always prevent that loneliness because there may still be times but it really will help with that yeah to be understood and for other people to have compassion and empathy for just how difficult emotionally and physically looking after type 1 diabetes is every day so I think uh, having a relationship that's that's understanding and having a relationship that's compassionate is really helpful so what maybe then even would you suggest for other people understanding and for you know not as the person living with diabetes but for other people how do we come to understand diabetes better we listen okay we listen we give people a good listening to <laughs> no no good talking to good listening to just listening it's a very underrated skill uh, listening, I do more listening than talking, hopefully, uh, in, in my clinical room. And if people feel heard, that's therapeutic. And is there an element of education for them within that then too? Learning about diabetes or is it just about listening to that person and their experience, do you think? That's a complicated question, I suppose. I, th I think for healthcare professionals, I think we talk about healthcare professionals. Um, it, we'll start off with healthcare professionals, maybe. I think... I think Maybe it's true of other people as well. I think a lot of people with type 1 diabetes are uh, used to other people giving them advice. 
I remember a client told me years ago, she said, sometimes my diabetes behaves like a, like a, a naughty child in the supermarket. It's having an absolute <laughs> tantrum. And the last thing you want when, some, when your child's having a tantrum in the supermarket is somebody coming over and giving your parents advice. Yeah. You know, so I think, it, you know, I think a lot of people with type 1 diabetes have that experience and they're not really looking for advice and they're not really looking for tips of what they should do or what they shouldn't do. It's not about the knowledge of Just the condition. Just a bit of acknowledgement and a bit of understanding and a bit of empathy because it's a tough gig looking after type 1 diabetes. I'm the one that lives with this condition. I'm the one who can manage it the best way possible. Yeah. I suppose there something maybe to come back on and just very briefly because we didn't talk a lot about it is the technology side. Technology is something that maybe is a little bit of a difference for type 1 versus type 2 as in it's used a lot more within type 1. What are the emotional impacts? We've talked about the positives there. Um, I think I briefly mentioned like alarm fatigue and stuff coming in but whilst technology is wonderful and has created a wonderful way of for people to manage their condition and take a lot of burden or pressure off. Are there negatives to, to just understand and recognise even? When we think about complex issues, it's tempting for us to oversimplify them, particularly in, I'm kind of conscious, we've only got a few minutes left of this podcast, yep. for example. So it's very tempting for me to come up with some kind of clever line to try and capture... Uh, An audience uh, and one, yeah. one-liner. But technology is complicated. It's a complicated yeah. solution. And there's lots of positives with technology. But there's a couple of things maybe two or three or four things that new problems that technology brings so technology offers a solution to a few things it makes the routine if we're talking about um hybrid closed loop systems for example it makes routine diabetes care a little bit easier but there are a couple of problems that come with technology as well just as a bit of a hybrid closed loop i'm about to draw a circle in the air here (laughs) (laughs) which means nothing to an audience but that is kind of everything talking to each other isn't that right correct okay and obviously we're not going into the deep dark depths of all the positives and negatives but it is just to understand that something will work better for somebody than another person or you may choose to go full loop system and you may not you may choose a cgm alone basically it's about working with what works for you what what, i mean i don't know many hundreds of thousands perhaps people with type 1 diabetes i've met over the years but one of the things my job has taught me is that everybody's different Everybody's personality is different, everybody's lives different, everyone's preferences is different, and how everybody interacts with technology will be different. So it's really, really, really important that it's not just diabetes that's understood when it comes to what technology is best, it's how the person works as well. So when we're thinking about applying technology, yes, we've got to understand somebody's diabetes, but we've got to understand them as a person as well, and we've got to make that fit as comfortable as possible. And I suppose that probably for me shouts out that that's a conversation that that individual has with their healthcare professional, their team. That's patient-centred care. Yeah. Brilliant. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. I know you mentioned there that we're coming to the end. It has been absolutely great to chat about emotional well-being and the importance of just understanding and recognising that that's a part of living with diabetes. It is a part that's like a physical element. You'll be back with us again next time to talk about emotional well-being a bit further, but living with type 2 diabetes, and I'm really looking forward to dipping into that. Thanks, Susie. Thank you. Oh, Mark, before you go, I almost completely forgot to ask you, what would be your top tip or piece of advice for somebody living oh, with yes. type 1? Two top tips. Oh. One good. would be uh, to always bear in mind what the purpose of looking after your diabetes is. Okay. Why are you doing for it? For you. For you. And secondly, control the controllables. You can only take ownership of what you have control over. And we don't always have control over capillary blood glucose. 
I do love that phrase, control the controllables, because it's just so easy to remember. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Diabetes. Remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Diabetes UK Northern Ireland, follow us on social media at Diabetes UK NI.